Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and royal librarian of an abandoned kingdom, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and lying ivory gate pedestrian, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Imperfect Hosts, Episode 2, from Netflix's The Sandman, Season 1. Imperfect Hosts was written by Alan Heinberg and directed by Jamie Childs. It's only blood, little brother. Only blood. Time to wake up. In Imperfect Hosts, Morpheus walks through his crumbling kingdom with Lucienne by his side. He is too weak to restore the dreaming without his tools. Meanwhile, in Buffalo, New York, Ethel Cripps gets a visit from the Corinthian, who warns her that she pissed off the wrong guy. Morpheus is out of his cage and common for his thanks. In The Dreaming, Morpheus decides that he must summon the fates to find out what has happened to his tools. Lucienne is worried about the cost, and Morpheus can only regain his power by absorbing something he created that remains intact. Morpheus goes to visit Cain and Abel at their houses of mystery and secrets to ask Gregory the Gargoyle if he will allow Morpheus to absorb him. Cain and Abel protest and offer themselves in Gregory's place, but Morpheus needs something he created. Gregory agrees, and Morpheus absorbs him. After he leaves, a grieving Cain stabs Abel with a pitchfork. Back in Buffalo, the Corinthian offers to show Ethel Cripps how to use Morpheus's tools to kill him, but she says she can't. She doesn't have them. The Corinthian wonders if Ethel's son, John, might know. Morpheus travels through dreams to gather the symbols he needs to pay the fates and summons them. He asks where his tools are and is told that his sand was sold to a magic user named Constantine, his helm traded to a demon for an amulet of protection, and the ruby passed from a mother to a son. When he tries to ask for more information, the fates are displeased and kick him out. He returns to Lucienne, who picks up an egg left on the ground and asks why he didn't give it to the fates. He says it wasn't meant for them. In the rain, Abel crawls out of his grave and discovers the egg waiting for him. In America, Ethel tells the Corinthian that she sold the helm in the dust and then her son John took the ruby. She says she doesn't know where the ruby is, but the Corinthian does not believe her. He takes off his glasses, revealing his toothy eye sockets, and wields a knife at her, saying her eyes will tell him everything he needs to know. She pulls out her amulet of protection, and the Corinthian disintegrates before her. At the Houses of Mysteries and Secrets, Abel brings the egg to Cain, thinking it was an apology for murdering him. Cain says, when have I ever apologized for murdering you? And good point. The egg hatches and a baby gargoyle emerges. Abel is delighted, but Cain is annoyed. He thinks Morpheus is just trying to buy them off. Abel wants to name it Irving, but Cain insists that a gargoyle's name must begin with a G and murders Abel again. Ethel shows up at the prison where her son John is being held. They talk a bit, but John doesn't seem that interested in anything she has to say, until she says that they need to talk about the ruby. Meanwhile, Abel emerges from his grave to meet Irving, who says he will call Goldie to mollify Cain, but in his heart, Goldie is really Irving. Abel defends Cain, saying that they are the first murderer and the first victim. This is their story, and it's really not Cain's fault. Then he tells Goldie the story of two brothers who loved each other very much, lived together in the same house, and never harmed each other at all, ever. 
In the dreaming, Morpheus heads to London to find his sand, and then he's off to hell to retrieve his helm. Lucienne asks him to take a raven, for her sake if not for his, so that the raven can report back, and Morpheus stubbornly refuses. In the dreaming, the Corinthian is reconstituted, and Lucienne meets him, saying Morpheus will be glad he's returned. The Corinthian turns right around and heads back into the waking world, despite Lucienne's warnings that he does not belong there. The Corinthian says he's leaving the dreaming and not coming back, and if Morpheus comes for him, he won't be coming back either. Elisa, here we are, episode two of the TV series. I'm still super excited about this. It's so fun to see this adaptation. Uh, what did you think about this episode? I really enjoyed Imperfect Hosts. As, as a comic, it always had a special place in my heart because it features both Cain and Abel from the Houses of Mystery and Secrets and the Three Witches from the Witching Hour. And those were the trifecta of my favorite childhood comics, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, and The Witching Hour. Um, the episode made some small but pivotal changes, and I thought they made the story even more resonant emotionally. You know, particularly for people who don't come with all this built-in feeling. I think that, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about how you've got a property like the Sandman, you've got two audiences. The audience that already cares about the Sandman, or, you know, also the Sandman and, and the other DC characters, and people who are coming really fresh. So mm -hmm. I thought this, this still worked for me, but I thought this was really beautifully done to invite in people who don't, you know, say, Cain and Abel, I love you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, the thing is that like, I kind of straddle both. Um, you know, I mean, I am new to the series, but I have read deeply, like all of the comics up to this point. Um, and not all of the Sandman, but you know, everything that we're going to be covering in this in this season of the TV show. Um, and I so I can kind of see it from both perspectives. And I have to say that I really think that it, it works for both audiences. Um, and that's a difficult line to straddle, especially when you're doing adaptation. Like we talked about last week, there are a lot of expectations on adaptation. Uh, you know, hardcore, old school fans often will be disappointed by adaptation, um, which is why I think you, if you're going to get the most enjoyment out of an adaptation, you have to realize that you always have the original material that is always available to you. Nobody's dragging it out of your hands. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting is that I'm finding that I'm having the same reaction to the TV shows I had to the comics. Um, you know, I always liked all the comics on the first read, but then when I would go back in two or three more times, do a deeper read, make my notes for the for the show, um, I would find that I'm enjoying it even more, that I'm seeing things. It's, it's such fertile ground, you know, to go back into and to kind of pull things out of. Um, and I'm also having this experience again, where every episode is my favorite until the next one, you know? Um, and then I go in, I'm like, oh, so as I was watching this, this week. I was like, oh my God, I love this episode. This episode is so awesome. You know, um, I love the sad story of Gregory followed by the delight of Goldie. Um, those are lovely flavors to put next to each other. Um, I love that Dream uses his power to gather the payment for the fates and the gift for Cain and Abel, that he did not forget what they sacrificed and what Gregory sacrificed for him. Um, I love that Cain is capable of love and sacrifice. You know, it's a wonderful bit of depth and character for a murderous son of a bitch when he says, no, take me instead of Gregory, right? That's a big moment. And the funny thing is, is that we actually see that first before we see his murderous side. I think that's also an interesting kind of flip there. Um, I love Ethel Cripps and the way that she is not afraid. She's living life on her own terms. 
around. She doesn't need Morpheus's tools to take out the Corinthian, someone no one else has been able to do yet in this story. I mean, even Dream, you know, ended up struggling because, you know, Roderick Burr just captured him. But still, like, you know, Dream was the only one who could deal with the Corinthian. Nobody else has been able to. But Ethel Cripps is like, yeah, you want to come at me with your little, you know, teeth eyeball sockets? I've got some news for you. And she just whips out an eyeball amulet, which I thought was also really kind of neat. Um, and I love Lucienne. I mean, we're, I'm going to talk about this in detail later. Just full stop. Love Lucienne. I think that that is an amazing character and I am enjoying her so, so much. But let's go ahead and talk about this story. Um, I think we have to start with Gargoyles, right? We have to start with Gargoyles for two reasons. One, it's so pivotal to the story. Mm -hmm. And two, because behind the scenes, we've been having all of this pet drama. I was, <laughs> you know, trying to get this done on deadline and I have a new puppy and then my big dog ran up into the woods behind my house yeah. and ran away and I ended up meeting a neighbor because he ran into her house <laughs> and ate all her cat food that was left mm -hmm. out for her cats. Um, and you've had cat issues. So with all of the cat and dog and puppy neediness, I think mm -hmm. it's a really good time to be talking about Gregory and Goldie, who are, you know, I, I guess Gregory is sort of a dog, as he is in yeah. the comic. Goldie is, I guess, a cross between, I don't know, Tweety Bird and... Has a very bird energy to me, yes. Mm -hmm. Bird bird dinosaur energy. Mm -hmm. So in the comic, they're kind of cartoony. In fact, this mm -hmm. is Sam Keith's artwork goes wonderfully exaggerated and comic horror in this mm -hmm. issue. And I think you can't do that exactly in the TV series. You have to mm -hmm. find a way to balance it. So I, I think the animators did this wonderful way of retaining Gregory's big dog-like essence yes. and, and, and Irving, I mean, Goldie's, you know, poignant innocence. I mean, that's mm -hmm. sort of if, if innocence could be incarnated, it would be Goldie. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, but it, it's, it's giving them a little more monstrous verisimilitude. We've got the little scales on Goldie. And, you know, you get Goldie flying in a way that like like a bumblebee flying or, you know, it, it doesn't look completely possible. And yet it feels <laughs> entirely plausible. Yeah. But the thing that I think is really crucial here is the, the gargoyle. Uh, the gargoyles figure in the comic in a really important way, but there is a, a, a crucial difference. So in the comic, it's the letters of commission. Sandman asks for the letters of commission, which right. Cain and Abel have signed, which I guess, uh, I, I don't know if this, I, I'm assuming it's that they lease the houses of mm -hmm. mystery and secrets in the dreaming yeah. there. Um, but here it's Gregory himself who is the creation. And I think that is a wonderful change. It is, yes. in a way, this does the same work. The work mm -hmm. is to show the dynamic between Cain and Abel to new readers or to new viewers, both of their attitude toward the letters of commission and to, uh, and, and to sacrificing Gregory shows their different way. I mean, Abel's emotions are always on the surface and Cain has what my mom used to call brittle defenses. He can't bear to feel his feelings. And so he goes into these berserker states. So it does the same work, but the loss of the family gargoyle is a more poignant thing than losing a piece of paper, no matter how important. 
you know, I, I found myself thinking, oh, wow, if this, this was really strong, mm-hmm. if it had come even later in the series, if we'd had a few experiences of Gregory beforehand, this would be even more heartrending. Yeah. But it's damn good here. And I think that both the script and the animators do a really good job of making us feel who Gregory is in this shorthand of movement and expression. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, Gregory is absolutely the hero of the piece. And I think that the problem, like if we had gotten to know Gregory at all better, I think that there would be um, just an outcry of, you know, of anger um, at losing him this way. Um, because you can kill humans as much as you want. But man, if you mess with a dog, and even though this is technically a, gar- a gargoyle, Gregory is clearly a dog. Um, and And we will not truck with that at all so i think that this was a really i mean we it's so quickly so efficiently got across how wonderful adorable beautiful gregory is how beloved he is because even kane will step up and say take me instead of gregory right which is shocking for who that character is um but it's it's such a beautiful um like moment of love and what i really really love is that morpheus hasn't come to take gregory he has come to ask gregory and this is something that we see repeated in the way that morpheus approaches his role is that he is not the king right? He is not the one who goes and tells people how it's going to be. He is a servant and he sees himself as a servant and he knows that that's the role that he plays. Um, How other people see him may be different, but how he sees himself is very much as a servant. Um, And I absolutely love that element of his character. I think, yes, you raise such a a, a great point. And I I think there's something about that that I I was going to talk about it later that is a quality he shares with Lucienne, particularly this incarnation of Lucienne. I also wanted to point out, though, another another change, which is in the comic, it's Cain who gives the egg to Abel. And it's Cain, not Lucienne, I believe, who is sensing that something is off. And he says, I'm going to try and not do it to you uh, too much. He can't bring himself to say the word murder. Here, <laughs> because it's it's... Morpheus, who is taking away Gregory, it's so lovely and so poignant that he is the one who gives the gargoyle egg. So the other thing that becomes clearer in this uh, episode is that nightmares can evolve into dreams. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's a really good note. I like that. I like that, knowing that that's a possibility. I think that opens up some really neat things in the story. Um, So we also come across John Dee in this issue, which is really kind of interesting. This is one of the biggest changes between, I think, the comic and and the TV episode, because in the comic, John Dee appears on the scene so monstrous. He is a skull with a little bit of skin stretched across it, broken teeth. Even his word balloons are jagged and Mm -hmm. scratchy. And then we see this picture of him as a very handsome young man. But now we've got David Thewlis, who was, Mm -hmm. I guess he was the god Ares in the Wonder Woman Mm -hmm. movie. I loved the Wonder Woman movies. I didn't love the the Ares role as much. (laughs) I don't know why. So I didn't, I don't think I said to myself, David Thewlis, I am completely infatuated with you. (laughs) 
And now I am because his way of incarnating John D yeah. is this quiet, wonderful, uh, like a, a, a slightly diffident British professor of English, perhaps, mm-hmm. <laughs> meek in his pajamas, his mind ever so slightly warped by perhaps too much uh, romantic poetry is the, mm-hmm. is the impression I get. And yet underneath there, there is something steely and grim. And it's just a really interesting take on his evil. And it's always more interesting when you see madness, you know, marbled through, like like a good mm-hmm. steak, it's marbled through with sanity and, and lucidity. So I I just really love that. Yeah, I love this portrayal of John D. I think in the comic that there was a a space for understanding that the way he looked was was an outer representation of an internal state, right? Um, and so how he looked in the comic to me, I never read literally. I read that as this is us being able to see internally how he feels. And I think that David Thewlis brings this like wonderful quiet menace you know, and danger to what is this, you know, like very kind of sweet and unassuming sort of persona. Um, and I love that, like the flavors that we find in here, you know, the the cane sacrificing himself right before killing or offering to sacrifice himself right before killing um, Abel. Um, and then to see this kind of gentility mixed with menace um, in in uh, the way that David Thewlis is playing this character. Uh, I think it's a wonderful adaptation and I really, really love it. Um, but bringing this back a little bit to Cain and Abel, um, I... There's this moment, you know, when Abel comes up, right, after having been murdered, right? And for those who haven't read the comics, that's going to be like a more shocking moment than for the rest of us who are quite familiar with how these two play out, right? Or or the Bible. You know, my, yeah, my daughter right. said that in, in her uh, English class, they were talking about something, and it was some old poem that was clearly based on, you know, what Christians call the Old Testament. And she mm-hmm. said, I, and one Christian person were the only person who, you know, understood the biblical antecedent. So yes. this is obviously mm-hmm. Cain kills Abel. Spoiler for, for, yes. for, for, you know, diehard atheists raised by atheists. <laughs> yes, there you go. So that's definitely part of this whole history. Um, but the thing that I find so interesting here is that we have Abel coming up from the ground, right? Have being buried also. And the thing is, is that Cain murders him, but there's nobody else there to bury him, right? There's nobody there to bury him. And burial is an act of love and grieving. And we don't see that happen, but that context is absolutely there. So we Mm. have Abel coming up from a ground in which his body has been carefully buried, right? And carefully, and I dare say, maybe lovingly buried, right? Um, He comes up through the ground. Um, He sees, you know, Goldie there. They sit and have a conversation. And the first thing he does is defend Cain, right? This is who we are. We are the first murderer and the first victim. And so this is what we play out. And I think unspoken there is that they play that out as long as that's playing out in humanity, that that is a part of 
the human experience as as ugly as that can be. Um, but again, here he is talking to Goldie. And the thing is, is that like, you know, for me, one of the first things that came up when I was watching him do this is that this is a typical kind of thing for somebody who is abused and they defend their abuser um, because you can only be abused by somebody who you love. You know, like there's there's that's a huge part of. Um, of why people, you know, um, endure some of the stuff that they endure at the hands of people that they love. And so there is this complication of love and abuse and the fact that these are very human patterns that these two characters are set to play and replay and replay. And it feels like until we get better, they can't, right? This is just where they are. So in this particular instance, all of these very human experiences kind of wrapped up in these characters who are ultimately played kind of comically, you know, I mean, much more in the comics than in here. Um, but it is, it's so lovely and crunchy and interesting and complicated for me um, that I really love it. And then Abel starts telling this story, this fantasy story to uh, to Goldie about these two brothers who lived together and they loved each other very much and they didn't live in separate houses. They lived in the same house and they never harmed each other ever the end, right? Um, such a fun little fantasy for him to play out. And it feels to me like it is that triumph of hope, you know, endlessly hoping that things can get better. And that as long as we have that hope, maybe they can. And I kind of love that about this relationship and about the way that these these characters are portrayed not as humans, but as archetypes of human experience. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they're also archetypes in the Bible. Cain's name in Hebrew actually means spear and mm -hmm. Abel's name means grief. Oh. So they are, you know, they are our first story of, of sibling dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And I think we need that story. I remember as a kid, I was 10 years old the first time I was reading the story in Hebrew and thinking, wow, back from the very beginning, if, you know, you have to treat your kids more equally. Think about what you're doing to them. <laughs> Cain and Abel are also, they're comic archetypes here. You know, there's the thin one and the portly one, the angry one and the apologetic one, the critic and the bumbler. And this was very much how they, they were in the old House of Mystery, House of Secrets uh -huh. comics. There's one difference. Um, as a kid, I reveled in Cain's insults. And mm -hmm. Neil went for it in the comic. You large-bellied, you know, button mm -hmm. buster. And it's only now that I look at it and I think, you know, not cool. Not cool. Because we all come in, in different sizes. We do not, you know, being uh, different sizes is not to be too thin or too heavy is not a sign of moral failing as, yes. as it used to be thought. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, um, I, I'm looking forward to the creativity of, of more insults, but that are not, uh, you know, that are not so appearance based. Exactly. Yes. You know, taking the uh, the anti-fat bias out of our stories, considering that it is one of the last biases that we actually still adhere to and many of us still think is appropriate, um, is a nice thing to do. There's no need for it. We're not talking about that. That's not something we're going to address in the text. So no need to give the impression that the text uh, co-signs on any of that. Um, and so I really do appreciate uh, that change in this adaptation. Um, another thing that I absolutely loved was Ethel Cripps, who is 
fucking badass. Like, I love her power. I love her confidence. I love how unafraid she is. Here, this guy takes off his glasses and he's got freaking teeth and mouths for eyes and it's creepy as hell. Um, I love her who's flirting now when chatting with a literal nightmare. Like, everything about Ethel, I absolutely love. And I love that Jolie Richardson here is an attractive woman. She's not the matronly woman from the comic. Mm -hmm. We need more glam con women over 50 or over 100, <laughs> as I estimate Ethel Cripps is about 116 here. Absolutely. I love that representation. Um, I, I also love this. This is a, kind of a tiny moment at the end, which will, of course, lead into uh, more things as we move forward. But the uh, when Lucien says, uh, you need to take a raven. Um, I love that Morpheus's grief over Jessamy is what's really behind his refusal. It's, I don't need a minder. I don't need a thing. He is, and it's this thing, when you love and you lose, you blame love for that pain, you know, um, which is, you know, I mean, fair enough, because grief is the inevitable consequence of love. You cannot have one without the other. Um, but it's uh, it's such a, a like wonderful moment. I think that Tom Sturridge does this beautiful like facial expression work with that, which gives away exactly what that is about, um, you know, rather than it being about having a raven or a companion. It's a romance moment. It's a total, I have lost my great love and I will never love yeah. again. And now I'm grumpy. And, <laughs> you know, and he needs, I mean, I suppose Matthew is kind of, he is a wise cracking sunshine, but mm -hmm. they are kind of yeah. grumpy and sunshine. And mm -hmm. I, you know, this is another thing. Matthew comes later in the storyline and the yes. comic. Mm -hmm. And the addition of this arc this very bromancy arc is mm -hmm. just lovely. All right. So I really want to talk about Lucienne because she is a mood. She is like my favorite. We're going to be talking about her a lot uh, because I have a lot of things to say about her. Some of it will be in Lucienne's library, which is less about the actual story, more about themes and uh, with some possible spoilers. Uh, but that is our next block in this one. Um, I basically am seeing something that I just absolutely adore. Here we have this black woman trying to talk sense to all these white men and no one listens to her, despite the fact that she is always right about everything. Uh, um, and the thing is, I don't hate it because the text is not d rubber stamping this. The text knows she's right, right? Absolutely on her side. And that's what I need from this. Not that we don't represent an actual situation the way that it happens because it sucks, but just that we are noticing that this is a thing that happens and she's absolutely right. And we are absolutely on her side. Absolutely. I think there is something about the way... This Lucienne is both a butler and, 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 I mean, she's more than a butler, obviously, mm -hmm. but it's that feeling of somebody who has their own authority, who has their own expertise and is very much there to be in the service of, of someone else. There's also something of, of knighthood about her to me. Yes, there really is. Like, the thing that Lucienne, and I see this in both Lucienne and Morpheus, is that Lucienne is in a team with Morpheus. She has a different role, but they both serve the dreaming. Like they are in this together. And because Morpheus knows his role is servant and not master, um, she is servant with him, but they are serving both serving something greater than themselves. And I really love that relationship. I 
love that team dynamic that they've got going on. I love that when he came back and she hadn't left, it, there was such respect in him for that. And she was like, of course I didn't leave. Who do you think you're dealing with? If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish and support us today. All right, so everybody, here is your warning. We are not going to be super spoilery. We might be light spoilery. So depending upon your comfort with the potential for spoilers, um, we are going to be uh, doing that in Lucien's library and talking about the themes that we see emerging in these stories. Um, and one of them is that we've got this kind of shift in tonality between comedy and horror um, with Cain and Abel. Um, and that's really interesting. And, and how do you compare that to how that played out in the comics? I think it's similar in some ways. I think there is a lot of comedy. There's more comedy in the way the three witches are depicted in the comic. And I think mm -hmm. that's because that role, it toggles back and forth between Cynthia, Mildred, and Mordred, although she's mm -hmm. changed then in Sandman to Morgane, uh, as, as these hosts. And Cynthia was the mod witch who was always saying, oh, man. You guys are so old school. Now I'm going to tell a really groovy horror story. And, uh, and you know, actually the Hecate or the Fates or the Furies. This incarnation of the three witches is definitely leaning more into a Macbethian mood. Cain mm -hmm. and Abel, I think, are, are keeping the comedy horror, which I'm really happy about. I, I do love comedy horror. I, I think there's, I mean, I'm curious how it feels for you in terms of going back and forth between the horror and the comedy. Obviously, this this episode has a, a crucial place because we started dark, we mm -hmm. go lighter, and then we're going to plunge into the icy cold darkness. <laughs> I really love those flavors together. You know, um, there is this sense of like genre autonomy where you are one genre and that is it and that's all you do. Um, and tonality, I think definitely is a consideration, you know, because sometimes um, when you have tones that don't work well together, um, it can feel really dissonant and it can kind of throw you out. I think that not only do we have comedy and horror, but we have like um, these really deep emotional notes as well in the story of Cain and Abel, right? You know, um, and, and losing Gregory and opening with that, which adds like a different tone into mixes everything up together. I think they fuse beautifully. Like, I think that all of these work really, really well together. Um, and the thing is, is that like that does again, give us life is comedy and horror and heartbreak and angst and all of that stuff together. Um, so when you think of fiction as a, a way of experiencing life, 
maybe with a focus, maybe with slightly less chaos. Um, it, it, it melds these things together in this really lovely way that I am enjoying. And I mean, the thing is, like, I've spoken before about how horror is not my genre of choice, generally. Um, although I've been interacting with it more in the last, like, year or two than I ever had before. I just avoided it before. Um, but I'm finding so many wonderful um, things in the horror aspects um, that thematically speak to something. It's not horror for horror's sake. It's not the jump scare. It's not, it's always like deeply thematically anchored in this work. And I think that is what makes it really, really work for me. Although we will see as we move forward, I'm going to struggle a little bit, but we'll get to that when we get to that. In a lot of movies that have been made from comic book characters until Guardians of the Galaxy and um, Deadpool, Everything was just deepened by going darker. It was darker, mm -hmm. deeper, darker, and deeper. And I really felt that there, it to me, it felt like people were undervaluing humor, poignancy, mm -hmm. and lightness as a way yeah. of deepening. There, there's often, I think, this knee-jerk sense that comedy is easy or more facile or just not as not as significant somehow. Mm -hmm. And I love that this is not going to that place. I, I don't know. I am a huge fan and admirer of humor above mm -hmm. all else because it, it often takes more work. You know how you've got phyllo pastry, which requires a certain amount of work, but then mm -hmm. if you're not just going to make a croissant with it, but you're going to, I don't know, somehow put a bunch of apple stuff in the middle and yet keep the crispiness, that's even harder. That to me is comedy. If you're mm -hmm. going to have... Uh, you know, the phyllo pastry of darkness and horror mixed with comedy. It is just full on apple strudel, which I guess is not really made with phyllo pastry. But the, the main idea remains. <laughs> the main idea remains. I completely get what you're going for. And I absolutely think that you're right. I think that there is a, a specific level of challenge to really mastering anything, be it horror and darkness or be it comedy. Um, but I think that there is something about comedy that requires a certain, um, you know, acrobatic quality of, of you're spinning a lot of plates at the same time, I think, with comedy. Um, and to do it well and to do it right and to do it with that anchoring in in something real the same way that doing horror anchored in something real anchored in themes that are very important and very human uh, becomes, you know, like a, an absolute, you know, wonder to watch when somebody does that well. And I think that they're doing that really, really well here. Um, now to bring us back in Lucien's library to Lucien and to everything that I love. Um, one of the themes that I really enjoyed in her story specifically is, um, is that element of just deep, deep, deep faith, you know, um, and there are a million things that I love about Lucienne, like both in the comics and as depicted here. Um, but mostly like, I love the passion for what she does and her role in the dreaming, you know, um, I love that she writes everything down and the heartbreak of seeing all of the pages go blank, um, is one of these, it's such a powerful moment. We don't spend that much time with it here because there's so much stuff going on. But I mean, when you think about it in this opening sequence, when she is telling him what has happened, um, you know, and even though like I feel for dream receiving this knowledge, understanding what his absence has done to the dreaming, um, you know, I empathize with her, um, and admire her ability to stay faithful throughout all of this. But like, Again, it is faith 
that saves us from despair. And I'm not talking about just religious faith, although I think that there are definitely elements of that, but just like faith in general, belief in something, faith in people, faith in the idea that good will always prevail eventually. Um, When faith is all we have left, it becomes the most powerful thing on earth. And I think that Lucienne as, you know, basically the embodiment of faith, of unshakable faith, She knew he was coming back. She knew this was going to, you know, and she knew she would be needed when he did. Um, God, I love that. I think that there's something about her that also feels very British in that sense of, Mm -hmm. you know, American films and stories often, they they take the, the British person who's too repressed and they say, just let it all hang out. And I, I think there is something to be said for being in touch, feeling your feelings, but not letting it all hang out. She <laughs> is containing. And there is just a lot of interest to me in that containment. Absolutely. But one of the things that I love um, in this is a quest story. Um, Building a strong story structure uh, requires a clear goal for your protagonist. Um, Not every story needs this. In writing, there are no rules, only principles. But in a world where we find ourselves often frustrated in the pursuit of our goals, following a protagonist with a strong, clear goal and seeing them achieve that goal is both really rewarding and and a direct path to story engagement. Um, A strong goal basically opens a door for your reader. Um, In other stories, you know, you might require them to crawl through a window or scale a tower and find a way in from the top. Um, But I love an open door story that is like, here we go. Follow my protagonist with this goal. Come right into the world of the story. Um, And it opens up that engagement um, at at an early time. Um, And a strong, vulnerable, emotional thread is also a really good door. Like you can have more than one door in a story. Um, And the death of Gregory also does this. Um, But I have to say, watching Morpheus in dogged pursuit of something so important and so clear um, is one of the things that drew me into the story in the comics. Um, And it is absolutely drawing me in equally now that we're in the TV show. And so I don't really have that much to say about it. I just love a quest story. And here we are a quest. We know exactly what he has to do. We know exactly how he has to do it. And we're going to watch him doing it. And I absolutely love seeing that. I think that one of the things that makes a quest work for me is also that sense of personal stakes of what Mm -hmm. you personally you know have to do and so you know I think when I've I've taught writing as you have and when you get these epic fantasies from younger writers Mm -hmm. you you get characters who have huge lofty goals but you don't get that sense of them making these small or perhaps not so small sacrifices. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you get this feeling from Morpheus's actions that he is sacrificing. He, by taking something away from Gregory, even with his permission, it is Mm -hmm. not a moment that makes Dream feel good about himself or what he's doing. (laughs) He's he's Mm -hmm. asking a sacrifice from a subject. The real world analog is Mm -hmm. a monarch taking something from someone weaker than himself Mm -hmm. whom he is supposed to protect and Mm -hmm. and it is um that is a double poignancy i you you know you can see in a way that dream knows that it is it is necessary but Mm -hmm. it is it is a sign of his weakness not of Mm -hmm. his strength 
that he is is doing this and he does it in the best possible way. So that's, you know, it's a nice um, masterclass in how to make your epic fantasy feel grounded in something emotionally real. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the purpose of epic fantasy and, and horror and, you know, all of this stuff um, is to give us a metaphor for something real that may be a lot to to figure out without placing it into a different world. Um, and that's a lot of one of the many, many things that fiction does for us. Um, but as you talk about that, like it brings me back to this idea of serving versus ruling like Morpheus. I believe that if Gregory had said no, that Morpheus would have tried to figure something else out, that Morpheus would have honored, you know, Gregory's um, autonomy and bodily autonomy, you know, um, which is something that I really loved about it. Like this was not easy for him to ask, but instead of demanding it, he asked it because he, Gregory is part of the thing that he serves um, and he understands that relationship. And I absolutely love that we're not seeing him go in and dogmatically command, but rather ask. Dogged pursuit dogmatically. I just think it's really interesting. We've got a lot of dogs <laughs> on our mind. But I don't think I don't think Morpheus ever thinks that Gregory would or could say no. It is in yeah. his nature mm -hmm. to serve in his mm -hmm. way. And yes. so Gregory wouldn't be Gregory if he didn't agree. And right. Dream couldn't be Dream if he didn't ask. It's mm -hmm. it's they they, you know, it is it's it's like asking something of a good mother or you know a good right. you know, it's you know and and that's that's one of the responsibilities of having a dog i you know as we've mm -hmm. been struggling with my my <laughs> pair you know that as difficult as they can be if you you always have to watch what you ask of a dog because they will give yeah. themselves a heart attack trying to give it to you Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So it has to mean something. It has to be important enough that you would ask this thing. I also find it really interesting when the Corinthian makes his speech, you know, to Lucienne, all Morpheus cares about his power ruling over everybody. And it's clearly not true. Like, it's clear that the Corinthian sees Morpheus through the lens of his own behaviors and motivations, where power is its own end. Um, it's a nice distinction between them. And I think that the way that the Corinthian does not understand Morpheus is going to be part and parcel of his downfall. So I really do enjoy that a lot. And I thought that was kind of a fun ending to the episode when he says all of that to Lucienne. Oh, hey, I just realized that with all of my gargoyle dog distractions, <laughs> I forgot to mention that uh, Neil used to call Karen Berger, who was uh, the editor, who was the, mm -hmm. the main editor on Sandman and was the, the creator of, of the Vertigo imprint. And, uh, and me, I came in as assistant editor after Tom Pyre, after Art Young. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, and then Shelley Bond was assistant editor after me and so he called us uh the three witches and i i think that's particularly lovely because we've had karen on this show and now we're gonna mm -hmm. have shelly Oh, yes. I'm very excited to talk to Shelley Bond. That interview will be coming soon. Um, yeah, that's it's going to be very fun having all three of the witches on there. Um, and uh, and it's a nice. Do you know which one you were? Uh, you know, I Cynthia, I, I guess Mordred. I would have been. I don't know. I mean, is it age wise or essence wise? Who knows? I think it's essence. essence. Yeah, I think it probably speaks to your essence. Then, you know, even so, I think, uh, well, 
it's it's hard. I, I think, you know, probably I toggled back between all of them. I was maternal mm-hmm. when I was nurturing and saying, this is amazing. Yeah. I, I had my flirty moments, I'm sure. But, you know, when I demanded that he give me a, uh, you know, a summary for the letter column before he was ready, I was showing some crone energy. Yeah, well, the three are one, right? You know, I mean, the three are three facets of the same person. Um, And I think that we absolutely can shift back and forth between all of those essences and energies at different times. So yeah, pretty cool. Okay, Lonnie, so I have to ask, what is your favorite part of this, the latest, and for the moment, your favorite episode? (laughs) And for the moment, my favorite episode, absolutely. Um, Oh, God, I have to say, when Abel wakes up to find the egg there waiting for him, um, it is the power of hope in the midst of despair and grief. And I just love that. So as sometimes happens, that was also a favorite moment of mine. (laughs) But because I'm a bad person... I also loved when Kane says, you can't call it Irving because gargoyle names always begin with a G. So that's in the comic. But there was a new little joke there. And and Abel says, Gerving. (laughs) So I I just love that. And is anyone, you know, I've just been spending forever trying to name my puppy. And I did consider Goldie. Yes. Mm -hmm. But she's she's Gilda. Um, but I just think Gerving and I had this moment where I think, oh my God, I almost want to call the puppy Gerving now. I know it's such a great name and I bet there will be a whole bunch of puppies and cats and and goldfish named Gerving this year. (laughs) I anticipate that's going to be a thing. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you're a good boy. We will be back next time with Dream a Little Dream, episode three of Netflix's The Sandman, season one. Until then... I have gathered my offerings. Now it is up to the fates.